Good morning. Welcome to those who are joining us in the Fellowship Hall and online today. Today is the final Sunday of our series of the Gospel of Matthew. And if you knew nothing about Jesus up until this point, if you were just learning and experiencing who he is chapter by chapter as the disciples had been living it until this point, these last three chapters would have come as a shock to you. Because this is where suddenly the story takes a dramatic and gruesome turn. Up until now, as we've been working through Matthew, we've heard of the life, history, and heart of a man who brought glory to God among the common people by healing, restoring, challenging, realigning the hearts of people with the heart of the God who loved them. A prophet, a priest, a king coming lowly on a donkey, a teacher, a healer, a worker of miracles of power, a friend to the powerless, a faithful man of God, of Yahweh the great I am, honoring his holy character in word and in deed, and yet dealing with the failures, the brokenness of human beings around him with surprising, tender, and amazing grace. This gospel reveals building evidence of prophecy and action as the disciples also come to this realization that this Jesus isn't just a man of God. He is the Son of God. The foretold Messiah proclaiming his kingdom is near, and the excitement builds. What's going to happen? And if this was all you knew about Jesus, how would you expect the story to go from here? The disciples imagined great things were coming, establishing a messianic kingdom on earth where wrong shall fail and right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to all, in their lifetimes. Maybe even with some seats of influence and power for them in this new kingdom. What a shock, then, when the soldiers pour out of the darkness and arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when we're plunged into horror, appalled by the mockery of Jesus' trial, his whipping and beating, his unjust, blatantly politically motivated sentencing of death, the callous cruelty of the mob of jeering onlookers, his torturous crucifixion. No matter how many times Jesus told his disciples, told us, that he would be betrayed, his body and blood given for our forgiveness, how could anyone expect this? Instead of the last-minute saves, the incredible healings, the miracles of power we have seen from him up until now, now we see Jesus doing nothing to defend or save himself. And even when one of his disciples tries to defend him with the sword, Jesus orders him to stand down. What is happening? Although Jesus demonstrated over the previous three years, he would have the power to prevent this situation of his suffering. He doesn't. Instead, what Jesus fully experiences is what any human being in the hands of a regime of terror would in all the frailness of powerless humanity. These chapters tell a horrific, gruesome story of the worst of humanity, going into graphic detail to document the suffering of Jesus, 
cruelty at the hands of human beings in power. And in painful detail, we see the betrayal, the selfishness, the brutal and ugly choices of people to be vicious and cruel and mocking in their words and abusive and sadistic in their deeds. These chapters show us what each of us can become at our worst when we operate out of fear, out of anger, out of hate. And that's what Jesus, the Son of God, experienced. And what was his response to this? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And to the criminal on the cross dying next to him who asks him for mercy even in that last possible moment, Jesus responds to that faith without demanding qualification or condition. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Mercy, grace, love. Even the soldiers who were killing him were amazed by him. That is Jesus. And then he died. And they took his lifeless body and they put it in a tomb. And they rolled a stone over it. What? That can't be how it goes. That's not right. You feel it, don't you? There's something written way deep down in the human spirit that cries out against injustice, that cries that good must win in the face of cruelty and selfishness and evil. Why? Because good, because love is at the heart of the one who created us, the one to whom we ultimately belong. Because we were created in the image of God and our souls long for home, for the place where God's will is done, where things are how they are supposed to be. And there is a kingdom where that's true. It's a kingdom of a new creation that has broken into this broken earthly one. And it's a kingdom our hearts long for in its fullness because it is our eternal home. It's the kingdom that Jesus' loving sacrifice opened up for us to make a way to receive broken people like us, broken people with hearts longing for more, for mercy, for grace, who made the way for us to be found in the brokenness in which we live and lifted out by a nail-scarred hand that will lead us from death into new life with him. Because, beloved, Jesus' story does not end there in the tomb. And the good news is for all who call him Savior because his story doesn't end in a tomb. Neither will yours. You see, there's still one chapter left in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. And it turns this story from being a tragedy to being the revelation of a strategy of a saving victory for all of us. In Matthew 28, we find the women who followed Jesus going down to the tomb to anoint his body for burial, something they hadn't been able to do before because he died in the hours approaching the Sabbath, the day on which no work could be done. But it turns out they weren't able to do what they came to do because the women don't find Jesus' body. 
What they find is a stone rolled away and an empty tomb and a terrifying and glorious angel telling them, he is risen. And as they run, confused, terrified, elated, they see Jesus himself alive. And as they fall down to worship him, he commands them to go and tell the disciples to go to Galilee, where they too will see him. And the women go and they tell. And so Jesus makes the first proclaimers of the gospel, the first to deliver the good news of his resurrection, a group of women who in the culture of the time wouldn't even have the authority to legally testify to the truth of anything in a court of law. But Jesus, the risen Son of God, entrusts these women with the truth of the testimony that will change all eternity. And thus a new creation begins. A new kingdom of resurrection life rooted not in who we are or what we've done, but in the victory of Christ alone for all of us. Jesus, the Son of God, died at the hands of humanity's selfish sinfulness, and yet Jesus is not defeated. Instead, he defeats death from the inside out, and he points his disciples to a kingdom that will never be defeated because Jesus came to be the firstborn of a new creation, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Someone had to make a way where there was no way, and that's what Jesus came to do for you and for me. He had to find us in the place where all our human striving has to cease, where there can be no doubt that only his power can give us life again, where finally fully surrendering to him, he may awaken us, washed clean as new creations by his grace alone. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And because this is his story, he also makes it yours and mine. Now, hearing all that, you might wonder, why is this how the story had to go? Did it have to be that hard? <laughs> Did he really have to suffer to die for us to have new life with him? Well, in a world where a loving God has given true freedom to human beings, there will always be freely chosen evil and selfishness and hatred. It's the infection of sin at work in all of us. But where Jesus enters our story, there will also be healing and hope and grace. The Apostles' Creed was put together as a summary of the Christian faith, and it was boiled down to be as concise as possible to include only the most basic things that people need to know about what Christians believe. And the portion of the creed about Jesus says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus was born fully God and fully human. Only he can be the perfect connector between fallen humanity and the holiness of eternal God. But after presenting his birth into our world, the very next thing presented as crucial to the Christian faith in the creed is that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. That seems like quite a leap, doesn't it? Because we're skipping all over Jesus' teaching, healing, miracles, preaching, all pretty important stuff. 
So why, when everything is boiled down to what is most important, do we need to know that he suffered? And at the hands of a verifiable historical person in a set time and place in history. Why does Jesus' suffering matter so much that it makes the creed? Well, how much of human life, of the human story in this world, is suffering? How much of your story? Why does it matter that he suffered? Because only then can we trust that he understands our suffering and that he'll meet us even there. And why does it matter that Jesus died, actually died and was dead and placed in a tomb? Because only then can we trust there's real hope for us even in death. It matters when you are facing death. It matters when someone you love dies. And that first really hit home for me when the father of one of my high school friends died. I remember walking up to that casket, thinking how hard it was to connect that lifeless body in front of me to the person that I had known. And suddenly I caught a glimpse of something on the inside cover of the casket. The family was Catholic, and what was displayed above his body was a crucifix. Now, being Lutheran, usually when we display crosses, they're empty on purpose to emphasize that Jesus, who was crucified, is now alive. And usually that brings me comfort. But this day, standing in front of one without life, who I came to mourn, I found myself drawn and riveted to that image of the lifeless body of Jesus. And the thought formed so clearly in my mind, it was like I had spoken it. Jesus was dead. Jesus had been dead just like this person in front of me, just like my body one day will be. Jesus has been this. Jesus has been there. He experienced this. He's gone ahead of us. He went first. And because he did, we can trust that when this is where we are, The one who was raised from the dead to new life will be with us. He will find us even there. Jesus was dead, but that is not the end of his story. It's only the beginning. And because it is, it's also true for this person I mourn and for me. Now, up until that moment, I hadn't understood the appeal of the crucifix. (laughs) I didn't understand how there could be any comfort in an image of Jesus' death. But now I saw the real love for the one whose heart feels nothing but dead. When you are in a place where you feel no hope, you can see Jesus is there with you. And knowing that, you can trust only the one who is with you there can lead you from that valley to a new beginning with him. He truly understands what life is for us. And nothing will keep him from us. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, sinking down to carry the sins of the world to the place they belonged. And leaving them there, on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. 
to die for us, to rise for us, to lead us into life, to be the only judge of humanity, him, not us. Those are his jobs. So as those who follow the risen Lord, what are we called to do here and now? How does he call us to live, to shine that light into the darkness of this broken world? Well, after the resurrection, after multiple appearances to the disciples, just enough not to blow their minds completely, but enough to help them see there's something bigger going on than they'd ever imagined. Before ascending to heaven, Jesus gives us the picture of what our part is of this new kingdom that's being unleashed, unfurled one life at a time by his saving grace. So trusting Jesus for what only he can do for us and for the world Trusting him alone to be our Savior, what are we called to be about in this world? Well, Jesus tells us in the concluding words of the Gospel of Matthew, our mission. He says, Go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Disciple. What is a disciple? Disciples are student learners. They're not experts. They are ones who are intentionally learning from a master. And we have a master, a teacher, a savior, a lord. And we are lifelong learners who make mistakes, who stumble and fall, who help each other learn. And our call is to go into the world and invite others to become those who are also learning from Jesus together with us. Make disciples. How do we do that? Well, Jesus continues, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The making of a disciple, a person who lives learning to follow Jesus, starts with baptism. That's step one in disciple-making. Why? Because everything must start from His work for us. It all comes from His promise to us. His adopting us in relationship, not because of anything we have done, but because of what he has chosen to do for us. Baptism is an enacting of Jesus' death and resurrection over us, water over the head and raised up over this particular person communicates in a way deeper than words that because Jesus died and rose for this person, this person also in death will rise with Jesus. And any faith that follows, anything that follows from that must start there. Baptism marks our lives. Jesus died and rose for this one. This one is his. But baptism isn't the end of making disciples. It's not the icing on the cake saying, now you're a fully formed disciple. (laughs) No, it's the beginning It's step one. He is Savior for you. So if that is true, if this is step one, what's step two in making disciples? Well, Jesus goes on, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. You're covered by the grace of Jesus. He gave everything to give you. You've been adopted into the family, so now you are free to grow to learn, like a child learning to walk. You're going to stumble sometimes, but you have a loving hand that will always reach to pick you up to try again. And how well you walk is not what determines whether or not you're in the family. (laughs) 
It only leads to how far you can go, how much you experience. There's no limit in this growth as long as you live. Living things grow, and a living relationship with Jesus will be lifelong learning. This is discipleship, growing and living out what Jesus commands. So what does Jesus command? If I were to ask you that question, how would you answer it? Do you know? A few years ago, I realized I wasn't very clear on what Jesus actually commanded versus what he taught. So I started reading through the Gospels, and whenever I hit a command of Jesus, I wrote it down. And if you've never done this, it's a really interesting exercise. I would recommend it. Because in doing so, it became very clear to me that the things Jesus commands don't fit well in any kind of moral checklist. <laughs> they are the things that shape our hearts to look like Jesus every moment we live. Obeying his commands is a lifelong, day-by-day -day journey of shaping the heart. Because what are some of his commands? Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Do not judge lest you be judged. Do not worry. Do not be afraid. Living these commands create a way of life, a way of living in relationship with God and others. And honestly, living these commands is beyond our ability to do without the Holy Spirit at work in us. So in your discipleship, how are you growing in obedience to the things Jesus actually commands? What gets in the way? Has the Holy Spirit nudged your heart in these things? in the past week? And lest we miss it, Jesus is giving this great commission to his disciples, not that we learn to obey all that he has commanded us, that's a good place for us to start, but that we teach the disciples, our fellow student learners, to obey all that he's commanded us, that we live our faith not only for our growing, but to help others grow in following Jesus. And to do that, we have to do this together. And then finally, lest we get overwhelmed by all that, Jesus brings us back to what matters most, the covering of his promise over us that we never walk this journey alone. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now notice Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything to bring about the end of the age. That's not our job. We are to, until the very end, work to lead people into his promises, to help them grow in learning what it means to be his disciple, learning how to live the Jesus way, held in his grace, and trusting through it all that he will be with us until the end and into the new beginning. So in the meantime, as we live in this broken world, the cross and the resurrection show us this. In suffering, Jesus is with us. In the darkness, he is the light. So as you think about what seems dark to you right now, know that even there, Jesus is with you. Because he's shown not just by words, but in action, that he will not leave us to face the darkness alone. 
This world is broken and life here will be hard at times. But Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Because of Jesus' victory, at the end of this story, a new one begins. And it will be simply a prequel to the true story of life we will live with the Lord. And the great commission of Jesus at the end of Matthew 28 shows us there is life Jesus wants to pour into the world in the meantime through us. To pour his presence, his promises, his comfort, his hope into the lives of as many people as possible, even in this broken world. And he wants to use us to do it. So as we learn and grow in living what Jesus commands, we're shaped by his character, his selflessness, grace, and love. And our lives are meant to help others grow as fellow lifelong student learners of Jesus. Because the Lord knows we grow the most ourselves when we're teaching someone else, right? So how are you helping someone else to know him? And finally, we're called to be people of hope and peace. Because no matter what we face in life or in death, he is with us. And he will be with us until the end becomes the new beginning. So let me ask, what helps you remember that he's with you? Is there a practice that you can adopt for yourself every day that will help you to remember the Lord is with you as you go about your day? Because when you know he's with you, it's so much easier to show others he's also with them. And he is with you to the very end of the age and into the new beginning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for all that you have done for us to make a way where there was no way for each and every one of us. And we pray, Lord, that in the glory of that promise, that you would infuse in us a heart that seeks after you, that you would use our lives, Lord, to reflect who you are to this world until everyone comes to know you as well. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.